1 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, and we're keeping the children in today, by the way, if you didn't pick up that. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says this, and you can turn there with me. We're going to focus our attention just on one simple phrase at the end of verse 5. In this description of the kind of love that God wants us to express towards each other in all relationships in our life. I'm just going to pick up in verse 4, read through the end of verse 5, to set this portrait of Jesus that we've been painting. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude or self-seeking, it is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. I believe the last statement there is, in a sense, an outflow of what precedes it. Biblical, Christ-like love. Christ honoring, Christ imitating love is a love that refuses to keep a record of wrongs that it has received from others. Okay, and that's the the bottom line of this text. A loving person does not hold the unintensive consequences of the sins of others over their heads, waiting to drop them and allow them to experience similar results in their life. Biblical love erases sin. As we were singing, I just, uh, I thank God for the set of songs that you guys did this morning so beautifully because it goes right into where this text is. The intended consequence of the cross of Christ is that our sin would be taken away. The intended consequence of Calvary's cross is that we would not have to live with bitterness and resentment welling up in our lives and destroying relationships. The intended consequence of the blood of Christ was to so cleanse Christians that they would no longer be able, in light of their forgiveness, they would no longer be able to hold unintended consequences of the sins of others over their heads as if to pay them back for the wrongs that they have done. This passage of Scripture, I think, is profoundly clear. Love does not keep a record of injuries, wounds, and wrongs that it has received. And I want to share four simple thoughts from this text this morning. The first one, I think, emerges out of the fact that Paul is addressing this. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. What does that anticipate? Okay, I think what that anticipates is that many of us, by the way, if you see people come in late, don't turn around and stare. Okay, and let me ask you this question real quick. How many of you this morning remembered that service was early? Go raise your hand, seriously. Okay, all right, good. There's a good number of you, okay? Uh, I mean, how many of you woke up thinking it was at 1045 and then realized it was 10 o'clock? Did that happen to anybody? No takers on that? Okay, just a lot of dishonest people. <clears throat> okay, if Paul is saying, love does not keep a record of wrongs, then what, is, what tendency in my life, what fallen creature tendency do I have? I have a tendency, tendency to hang on to wrongs that people do to me. Okay, I have a tendency to journal them, make them a permanent record. But if Paul is writing this verse to say love doesn't keep a record of wrongs received, then one thing that I think is very clear that emerges. Understand, first, that conflict occurs in all relationships. Okay, there are certain levels of tension that arise in, and I'm using the word all, I'm kind of being brave, okay, 
but I assume that all of us in the context of close relationships have had times where we have experienced unintended consequences because of the behavior of others or our behavior toward others. Okay, so conflict occurs in all relationships, and I believe that this text anticipates that, and I think the message that emerges back towards us is we are not exceptions. Okay, if you ride in the car and your mate is driving, okay, there's a potential for conflict. Okay, I don't know if it happens in your car, it happens in my car. If your daughter is just learning to drive, guys, you, you, you know, we'll let the guys off the hook because I only know this from one side. You're teaching your daughter to drive. Guess what you're going to have? Unintended consequences of a little bit of an edginess between you and them because you were talking too much. What I learned is this. If you talk at all when your daughter's learning to drive, you're talking too much. Okay? Uh, just unintended consequences. Okay? If you drive to church together, okay, you probably at times on Sunday mornings experience conflict. If you watch TV with more than one person with a remote control involved, Okay, you probably will experience consequence. If you're raising children, mom and dad, it's likely that you will experience between yourself and your mate conflict. If you go to order pizza with uh, two families of five and six people and you're ordering three pies, I guarantee you something. You're going to have some conflict. Why? Because we all have our own desires, our own likes and dislikes. Some people are very forceful about them. Some people are like, hey, whatever you want. What, why is somebody saying that? Why is somebody in the car like, hey, hey, you know, whatever you guys want to do is fine. You know why? Because they're trying to anticipate that this is a likely setting in which conflict occurs, and they've learned over the years to step back and say, you know what, there are some people that just feel that they need to make the decision. And if I interfere with that decision-making process, we're going to have a conflict. And the unintended consequence will be there will be some level of resentment that starts to build up in the relationship. So if Paul says love does not keep a record of wrongs, and that is an encouragement to us to not do that, then I think it is clear that it is likely that we will have conflict in our relationships. The first real conflict that is experienced in the context of marriage. I don't mean the disagreement about the lid on the toothpaste or not, or how the toilet paper comes off the top or bottom of the roll. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the first serious, you dig in your heels, she digs in her heels. That first time causes panic in the hearts of many newlyweds. Because you know what starts running through their mind? Did I make a mistake? Did I make the wrong choice? I can't believe this is how I never expected this. You married a sinner. And when sinners say I do, guess what? They're going to act like what they are. They're, they're going to be sinners who, who need to memorize this brief statement of Scripture. Love refuses. I mean, edit it a little bit. Make it stronger because it's very strong in the original. Love refuses. It will not keep a record of wrongs that are received. Understand the conflict occurs and it builds resentment. Intense disputes that are over, occur over years can shake even the most seasoned married couple. You can be 20 plus years into your marriage and all of a sudden be thinking, did I make a mistake? Usually it's because there's been this tendency to keep a record of wrongs in a context where wrongs are very likely. We need to, I believe, understand why it happens. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, if you want to turn back to it, it's just one book back. Romans 3 and verse 20 gives us an indication as to why conflict occurs in the context of relationships. Paul, under the inspiration of Scripture, very wisely says this. 
Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Okay, it is likely that in the context of relationships, Tim Hoff is going to fail. He's going to be the cause of unintended consequences. If in your relationships you expect people to live perfectly to the law, you are setting them up with an unrealistic expectation, they will never be able to make you happy. Ever. Why? Because they're sinners. And Romans 3.20 helps us to loosen our grip on our demands on people that they perform with perfection or we're going to hold it against them. It says that no one keeps the law perfectly. That means that in the context of our relationships, it's likely that we're going to have friction. In our homes, in church life, in work life, it's why it's there. And I hope in some way that that is a bit of relief to you. James chapter 4, verse 1, tells us where this all tends to come from. James asks the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He says then, don't they come from your desires? Okay, go back to the pizza. Go back to driving the car. I want to go this way, not this way. Okay, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something and don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Does that sound familiar? This leads to this, this leads to this, this leads to this. In the context of our relationships, we experience conflict emerging. Understand that conflict occurs in the context of marriage over almost anything, silly things, keeping things or throwing things away, how the thermostat is set, is food better with salt or not, is it healthy or not, the use of our money, watching movies. My wife loves the old black and white movies. Okay, I like born identity, born supremacy. Okay, if it's pride or prejudice and born, born supremacy, I don't even think there is a reason for discussion. Okay, I don't... But my wife thinks that there is. She has different desires. And when those desires collide, what happens? You have what everybody has in their home. Conflict. And let me, let me just let you in on a secret. The families at church that you think are unbelievable are. Okay? If you think that that kind of harmony is always there, get the wife alone. Okay? Because that unbelievable couple is just that. And folks, I try to be transparent as your pastor about my stuff sometimes. And do I get nervous about that? Yeah. Do people ever warn me about doing that? Yes. But I don't think I help you. If you think that because Ruth Hoff is so wonderful that Tim Hoff never irritates her, never upsets her, never gets her to... just did it to me the other day in the car. I should have been driving, okay? This, I, I got to... A reaction for her that was completely justified because I was being a fool. But she can get there. And when you live with someone like all of you are saying, we know. Okay, move on. All right. But I, I, all I want you to know is it, it, it happens. To the strongest couple that you observe, it happens. Don't let it blow you away. Don't let it cause you to think that your marriage relationship is hopeless. By the grace of God, the intended consequence of the blood of Christ is to annihilate these divisions in our homes and to raise us up strong for the glory of God. Okay, it's the intended consequence of the blood of Christ that sinners can say, I do. And that 1 Corinthians 11.10, remember we looked at a few weeks ago, you can actually have structure, a man leading a wife in a context that is completely healthy because it is 1 Corinthians 11.10 in 
the Lord. Paul says, however, in the Lord it works like this. So it's possible to have peace and harmony and a loving relationship with someone who has deeply injured you. Because there is an intended consequence to the work of Jesus on Calvary's cross for you. Therefore, if I understand why they happen, my flesh, then the key to successful relationships, and I mean this at the broadest level, the key to successful relationships is not avoiding conflict. Okay, the key to successful relationships is not the avoidance of conflict. And most people think, well, if I could just avoid conflict, then I would never have problems. Well, you're still yourself. You're still yourself. Okay? So the key to a strong relationship, a marriage, home, parent, child relationships, all those kinds of things is not avoiding conflict. The key, I believe, is realistic expectations. Realistic expectations understand that conflict occurs in the context where fallen people live together, work together, spend time together, educate together, dorm room together. Okay? I, you can just count on it that conflict occurs in all relationships. The key is realistic expectations because no one is declared righteous in the sight of God based on their performance. Therefore, free your child Free your mate, free your coworker, free your fellow student at school from the unrealistic expectation that we're going to get along and there will never be problems. Paul is saying, oh no, there will be. But when it occurs, refuse to keep a journal of those wrongs. Okay, that's the direction he's starting to move. And so, understand conflict occurs, all relationships. Number two, however, unresolved conflict is always a problem for relationships. Okay? Understand it's going to occur. However, okay? And, it, and it, it's, not, it's not fatal. It doesn't mean your relationship is bad, that you made a mistake getting into that relationship. It's not what it's about. Okay? But if when the conflict occurs, I don't resolve the conflict, it will always be a problem in your relationships. Okay? Does that make sense? If I don't res- that it happens, it happens. It happens to everybody. But if I don't resolve it, it will become a serious problem in my relationships. I want you to turn ahead to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Just if, if all of you would turn there. Appreciate that. Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> Let's see if this assertion that we're making is biblical. That unresolved conflict is always a problem. <clears throat> and... and <clears throat> As I said, I'm not saying that there are never things that you should overlook. There are some things that are unintentional. Okay, they may bother you, but they, what? They, they left the bowl in the sink and didn't wash it. Okay? Was that a statement? Okay? Dance like did that last night. I can I just saw him get an elbow there. <laughs> His arm flew up in the air then. Okay? It's not, it's not, everything doesn't have to become a conflict. Everything that's done that wounds you doesn't, it wasn't necessarily intentional. Okay, so sometimes you just got to back off a little bit. Give people room to breathe and be human, be sinners living together. Okay? But when there is a problem that is a wound, an injury, that must be dealt with. If you don't deal with it, it will create problems in your relationship. So, Ephesians 4, verse 26. Is it true that unresolved conflict becomes a problem? Verse 26, he says this. In your anger... 
do not sin. Do not let the sun go down when you're angry. Now, you, 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 can, you can tweak this out. You can, you can be as literal as you want to be here. Okay? But I think the bottom line is very, very clear. When there is conflict and injury, do not let time pass before you resolve it. Okay? Set up a reasonable time frame in which you are going to deal with the problem. Okay, and that's, I think this is very clear. In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun set while you're angry. Okay, make sure that you put into place a plan by which you're going to deal with that. There is a lie in our culture. The lie is very brief. It says, time what? Heals all wounds. Isn't it fascinating that Satan would make it so poetic? Make it sound so, just what a, what a beautiful way that some people live. If you live long enough, your pain's going to go away. And you will have unhealthy, unchristlike relationships in your life. Okay, I think Paul is abundantly clear here. Don't let time pass, and here's why. How many of you have ever had termites invade part of your house? Or seen a termite infestation? How many of you have seen that? Okay, you've seen the damage that they do. Okay, at my father-in-law's house, he has, and I didn't realize what this was until about a year ago, I used to think this was poison, okay? He's got these green tubes that are two inches in diameter, about a foot long, and they, they drill a hole in the ground, and then you shove them down in the ground, okay? I thought there was, like, termite poison inside of there, okay? That's what I thought was in there. And then he said, no, he opened, it up, opened one up for me and showed me a piece of wood that's inside that little capsule. Termites crawl through the, the slits in the side of the tube, and they begin to eat away at the wood. Okay, now here, here's, he's got them all around his house. Okay, my, my father was very particular about this kind of stuff. Okay, if he opens that up and finds a termite, what do you think he does? He sticks it back in. No, you know what he does? He calls the exterminator. You say, for one termite? Yeah, for one termite. Why do you think he does that? What's true about termites? If you have one, you probably got thousands. Okay, ants, same thing. They don't, they live in colonies. Okay, they live together and they multiply. All right, the other day my wife said to me, down by the garage, you need to get some spray and spray. There's ants and, and you go out there and you would, sometimes you want to say there's like millions of them. Okay, they live in colonies and they reproduce and multiply very, very quickly. And, and this text I think is saying to us, sin of this kind does not it it never remains alone it's never a single incident okay if you leave unresolved sin in your life if you allow resentment to be buried in your life it will multiply it will fester it will work like yeast working its way through dough okay you can't people think that i can take a little bit of resentment anger bitterness hide it in my life and it won't affect the rest of my life okay it is a foolish perspective because verse 27 of Ephesians 4 says this. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. That is, don't wait long when you have unresolved conflict in your life. And do not give the devil a foothold. Okay, what's the implication? If I allow unresolved conflict to fester and to become bitterness and resentment in my heart and in my life, I will give Satan a foothold 
Which, what does that mean? What does it mean to give him a foothold? What do you think? Okay, it lets him in, but it, it, it's, it's more than letting him in. He, it, it's, it's to place, your, place the foot against the solid object to give greater thrust and influence. Okay, that's the picture. The other word that's used in the original language is to give a, a base of operation, to give him, to grant him a room in your house, in the house of your heart, to give him, hey, Satan, you can stay there. Because there's something in there that is very precious to me. But that thing that's in there will never stay alone. Paul says, don't let the sun go down while you're bitter. Because if you do that, bitterness will smolder and it will consume all of your life. And it is devastating in its consequence. So verse 27 says, it gives Satan a place. It gives him traction and it steals power from the work of the Spirit of God. Say, Tim, how do you know that? Get down to verse 30 in the same context. All right. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of your ultimate purchase. Okay, so this work of the Spirit of God looks forward to the completed work of God in my heart when I am finally free from resentment. And what is the work of the Holy Spirit? It is to, His work is to drive sin out of my life. If you're genuinely born again, when there's conflict, resentment, and bitterness in your life, you will sense the Spirit of God is not comfortable. And He makes you profoundly uncomfortable. And it is one of the evidences of conversion in your heart that the Spirit of God has come and taken up residence and He will not abide sin in your life. Thank God for that. That holy discomfort that causes you to know that I have to resolve this conflict before it breaks out into a full-blown, life-devouring fire. Resentment stacked up in my heart, I believe, kills the power of the Spirit of God. It grieves Him. It quiets Him in my life. It, he, it, that uh, resentment destroys effectiveness, and it, I believe, deafens us to the voice and direction of God. It makes us spiritually hard of hearing. Why? Because the noise of that resentment clamors around. It echoes in our lives and makes it impossible for us to hear God. Folks, there is a serious danger when we keep a record of wrongs that we have received. Unresolved conflict is always a problem. Having it in your life doesn't necessarily mean that there's a serious problem, but if you don't resolve it, it will always fester and become a problem. So, number three. Number three emerges directly out of 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Make a commitment to keep no record of wrongs or offenses. Now, folks, let me just, okay, nice in theory, right? I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, Pastor Tim, if you knew all of the details, there, there are some of you that I, I've talked with you, I know the details of your life because you shared them. And I know it is profoundly difficult to kill that deep-seated, deep-rooted resentment, injury from parents that has poured out on your life, your whole life, into adulthood. But that resentment that you feel, please understand this, that is the prison that you have chosen to live in or that you're allowing yourself to live in. If you don't go and say, you know what, I'm going to forgive that person. I'm not going to hold this against them for the rest of my life. That attitude of bitterness, that holding on to a wrong that received and never addressing it will fester in your life. It will 
silence and deafen the voice of the Spirit of God, and it will make it almost impossible for you to have other healthy relationships in your life. For the sake of your children, for the sake of your mate, for the sake of your church, your workplace, your community, be sure that you deal with this quickly and that you don't hang on to a list. What in this text does it mean to be wrong? I think the idea is, is parallel to Matthew 18, where it says in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you. Okay, this is where I want to clarify. Between the unintended consequences of some of the stuff that's done and then the unintended consequence of, a, of intentional hurt, wounding, badgering, whatever you want to call it. Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, and it's clear, I'm, I'm going to talk about this next week, a strategy, go. And then he gives you specific things that God wants you to do in terms of bringing forgiveness into the life of that individual and setting yourself free in the freedom that Christ has given you by his shed blood. The standard for what is and is not an offense, and I want this to be very clear, the standard for what is and is not an offense is not my personal sensitivities. Okay, and please understand this. My personal sensitivities are not the standard by which I can go around and recklessly judge others and accuse them of wounding me. Do we need to caution ourselves about against being overly sensitive, overly reactionary to circumstances? However, when there is a wrong that is received, or if there is a, for instance, I'll use my wife as an example. If I have a pattern in my life that wounds my wife over and over and over again to the point that I am sinning against her, she has every right, and I believe a God-given responsibility to come to me. And to hold me accountable for my behavior. And if I refuse her, I think she has a, a responsibility to get another brother or sister in Christ in the church and bring them and talk to me again. Okay, if there are, are in the end, if she says, hey, you may not mean to do this, but when you leave that, that ice cream bowl in the sink, it really ticks me off. It makes me feel uh, like your slave. Okay? And she brings that to me and brings it to me. If I continue to do that, I am now sinning against her because she's expressed the impact that that action is having on her and I don't care. Does that make sense? So that it's not every little thing that comes up, but when there is sin, an intentional wounding of a brother or sister in Christ, it needs to be addressed. The text says this. Love does not keep a record of wrongs received, literally it means it does not register the evil. It's a financial term. It doesn't reckon to it, reckon the amount into the ledger book. Okay? Why do people write things down like that, financial things? Why are they written down in a ledger book? Okay, to keep, a, to establish a permanent record of the pluses and minuses. Okay, of the revenue and of the deficit, right? That, that's why you, you reckon those things. You write them down and keep a, personal, a per permanent record. What this text is saying is love doesn't do that. When love is wounded, it doesn't go write it down in stone and make it a permanent record that is now held over the person who has offended them to drop it on their head the next time there is a provocation. Okay, I think this principle is so vital and critical. If you keep a journal... You keep a journal because you want a permanent record of the things that perhaps God is doing in your life. Okay, you write it down so that you can go back and review that and, and experience encouragement seeing the hand of God in your life, correct? 
This text is saying, in regards to wrongs received, be afraid to do that. Because that resentment and bitterness will not live alone. It will fester and it will begin to write its own entire story of your life. The journal is an autobiography. The other one is a biography that somebody else is writing. And it will destroy your life. It keeps a careful record in the books. It reads and rereads a, D.A. Carson puts it this way, a private file of grievances kept to be consulted whenever new slight is possible. Do you know how this works in your life? You forgive someone, and then things start to drift back in the old direction. You're just, you're waiting to be able to say to them, there you go again. Is that forgiveness from a biblical perspective? I think the answer for Scripture is very clear. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs received. The only reason that someone would keep a record is so they can be brought out and dropped at a later date. James chapter 3, verses 14 and 16. I want you to listen to this because you understand why Paul says, make a commitment to keep no record of wrongs or offenses that come your way. James 3, verse 14. Listen to this. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and it is fascinating. It is of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, you will find disorder and every evil practice. That is, what is he saying? If you let bitterness and envy, strife, in your life, what will happen? Everything else can come into play. It can all become possible in your life. That, I think, is written as a text to warn us about the danger of harboring resentment that turns to bitterness, that turns to malice. Gary Thomas, in his book, uh, The Marriage Covenant, makes this statement. And he's quoting, uh, he's quoting a man, I have his name written down here, Francis de Sales. He says, he gives us this, this advice in terms of how do you respond to wrongs that you've received. He says this. He says, we as the church should have contempt for contempt. We should have contempt for contempt. What is he saying? We should be so afraid of bitterness, of envy, of resentment, of a payback mindset, of contempt, that we actually hate the contempt because of its capacity to destroy. We have contempt for contempt. As my one other friend said to me, why don't we, when we're in fear, why don't we doubt the doubt? Okay, well, why don't we as the church say, I want to have such hatred for hatred that I will not let it abide in my life. That I will take action to be sure that it is rooted out for the glory of God. Love forgives. It doesn't cultivate memories out of evil. It doesn't lock them in long-term memory. It doesn't put them on a flash drive and store them to be brought up later. Folks, may God help us to be afraid of keeping a record of wrongs that are received. And the last thought I want to leave you with this morning is this. Embrace conflict as an opportunity to draw attention to the grace of God. Conflict is an opportunity for us to magnify, to amplify the grace of God that we have already received. It is the intended consequence of the cross that we would be living testimonies to the grace of God in our world. And 
I love this, Ephesians 1, and for eternity. We will be the trophies, the illustrations of the abundant grace of God for eternity. And he wants us to be that, folks, here. So when resentment, when wrong, when hurt comes your way, you have a multiple choice answer. You can allow it to fester and destroy. Or you can say, you know what? I'm going to go deal with it. I'm not going to let that resentment and that contempt build up in my heart so as to destroy my relationships. It is, conflict is, our chance to exalt God's grace in our lives. Think of Ephesians chapter 4. Let me just read these verses for you real quickly. Ephesians 4 and verse 32. This is God's antidote for resentment and bitterness and a lack of forgiveness. He says this, Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other. Just as God in Christ forgave you. Isn't that powerful? Forgive each other just like God in Christ forgave you. Verse 1 of chapter 5, I love this. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. You have a heavenly Father who has forgiven all of your sin, all of your wrong, and He is habitually loving you. You are dearly loved children. Live a life of love, Paul says, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So God sends His Son into the world to bear away all of our sin, to make complete forgiveness possible. And He absolutely forgives you of all of your sin. And then He says to you, be like me. Don't you dare hold sin over your wife's head. Don't hold disappointments from your past over the head of your child. Don't hang on to it. It is the prison that you will live in. One writer said, the opposite of biblical love is not hate. It is apathy. The opposite of biblical love is not active hatred. It's apathy, coldness towards people because bitterness and resentment is stored up. And we're not going to go deal with it. We're not going to go address the issue so that there can be a resolution that magnifies the grace of God. So Ephesians 4.3 says this, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You know what that means? That means conflict resolution is hard work. And we are, as God's children, to make every diligent effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the context of Christian relationships in the bond of peace that comes through the Prince of Peace himself, Jesus Christ. Folks, Resolving conflict is our best opportunity to exalt the grace of God. Because when I am forgiving someone, I begin to feel a little bit of what Christ went through. And if I never forgive people from the heart and destroy the sin and don't hold it over their head anymore, if I never do that, I never know what it is to be like Christ. Because it is His mission. It was His mission to shed His blood, as we sang so beautifully, to take away our sin I am never more like Christ than I am when I am forgiving my wife for a wrong received. You are never more like Christ, ladies, when you forgive your husband of, of some level of resentment that you've been harboring and holding against him. Children, you are never more like Christ 
that when you respect and honor imperfect parents who do some of the stupidest things and build up in your heart levels of resentment, and we know this, we're imperfect, all of us, okay? So if you remember your imperfection, that you have been, the only reason you are righteous is because of the blood of Christ, because Romans 3.20 said that by the works of the law, no one is declared righteous. So none of us can ever come from above down to. We always come to from the same level. Only Christ came from above, perfectly paid the price for our sin with an intended consequence that we could become, Ephesians 5.1, dearly beloved children of God. To close this morning, I want to remind you of a story in John chapter 8. A woman who is captured in adultery, caught in the act, is drug in and tossed before Christ as if she was a dirty rag. Just flung into his presence by the religious establishment that did have no understanding of the grace of God. None whatsoever. And Jesus understands why they're there. And they're saying, well, doesn't the law say that she should die? And Jesus just doesn't play their game. Doesn't she deserve what she deserves? And he won't answer. He sits down and the Bible says he, he doodles in the sand. He doodles in the sand. And then after a little bit, he looks up at them and says, uh, all right, here's my answer. If any of you is without sin, you that have contempt and bitterness for this woman, you can throw the first stone. I mean, if any of you can claim innocence, then go ahead, have at it. Look, do you understand what we're doing? Do you understand what we're doing when we harbor bitterness and resentment as a tool of judgment over the head of mate, of child, of co-worker? Do you understand what we're doing? We're, we're in the role of, we're trying to be Christ, but we can't be. Because we bring our own sin into the relationship. We, we mess up in that context too. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 19 says that Christ does not reckon our sins against us. And here's what's fascinating, same word same word. Doesn't reckon our sins against us. Same word. It's a financial word. He doesn't log in a permanent record our sin. Who is that true for? Because he does have a record of our sin. There's going to be a judgment day, right? But the Bible tells us that everyone who trusts in the shed blood of Christ will find on judgment day that all of their sins are what? It's, it's so beautiful, isn't it? They're blotted from the record. Think back to Colossians 2. He took the list of the handwriting of indictments against us and he nailed it to the cross and his blood flows down and the record is clean. Not because Tim Hoff is free from sin, but because of God's grace. Do you see? And every time we forgive someone who truly has wronged us, offended us, and sinned against us, what are we exalting? We're exalting the grace of God. We're magnifying the cross of Christ. And every time I harbor bitterness and resentment in my heart, I, let's say I, I turn that verse to an opposite. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love keeps a record of wrongs. Every time I do that, what am I doing? I am denying the power of the blood of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but here's the way I am in terms of worship. No songs 
draw my heart more to worship than songs about the cross. Because I'm conscious of something. I've, I've tried to cultivate a consciousness of something, and that is this. I can't come and say, here I am to worship, apart from the blood of Christ. Does that make sense? You can't come here on Sunday morning and sing that song, truly entering into God's presence, apart from the intended consequence of the blood of Christ that poured down on you. And once that blood covers you, his invitation is, come, come. And even this morning, if you're here and you, you know inside of you there is a rebel heart that has not been redeemed by the grace of God. You know what he says to you? He says, come. Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. From what? Is he talking about a physical reprieve that is temporary and benefit? No. He's talking about the shalom, the peace of God that comes when the blood of Christ pours over a sinful heart, annihilates the sin, and sets that person free from past, present, and future sin. Folks, how? How? How can we live under the blood, past, present, and future, consciously, and then harbor resentment in our hearts? Okay, that's the question you have to ask. Because it is hard. It's hard to resolve conflict. It is hard work. That's why most of us avoid it. It's hard to get rid of bitterness from things that have been said to you in the past. For young people, it is hard. Junior high kids can be brutal and say things to you that can scar you for the rest of your life. Parents can say things to kids when they're young, when they're adults, that will, that will just wound them and damage them for the rest of their life. It's only when I realize that under the blood of Christ, it's the only place that I'm forgiven and free from my sin. So here's the question. As you look back, do you have an independence day? Do you have a day when the blood of another gave you freedom that you can celebrate? What I'm saying is, have you trusted Christ? Have you come under the blood and been cleansed and forgiven? If you haven't, here, here's what he says. He says to you this morning, come. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will destroy sin in your life and set you free from it for my glory. It is the intended consequence of the coming of the Son of God that every sinner should be cleansed from their, from their sin by the blood of Christ. This morning, friend, if you know Christ, and you're living with resentment, you need an Independence Day too. Because the person that is most affected by bitterness, by resentment, by unresolved conflict, is the person who holds the weight over someone else's head, waiting them for them to make a misstep so that it can be released. And the arms of life burn with pain as the burden is carried, waiting for the opportunity to engossip drop it in front of someone else to destroy their reputation. Or simply just to repeat it back to them over and over. So you keep this poison in your head. I read a, uh, just a brief quote the other day about a man who was an, one of the freedom fighters in, in, in terms of the Holocaust. Uh, places like Auschwitz. He helped to go in and free people. And he saw such atrocious and horrendous things that he made this recording. He said, my heart is so full of bitterness and contempt that if you lick it, that is what you will taste. And that's how that man died. Full of bitterness and resentment, not knowing 
that there was complete forgiveness and freedom from bitterness, from personal sin, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Folks, that's the message we get to live. That there is a Redeemer who allows us to not have to hold on to the record of wrong, to become judge and jury. The reason we hang on to it is to make them pay. May God help us to declare independence today from the chains that bind. Father, we pray this morning in the name of Christ.